Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, this is the ninth sermon in our sermon series on the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11. And this evening's study is Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, page 3 in your Pew Bible. Now, it's the second in what is a four-part sermon dedicated to the loss of paradise. And because this narrative is so familiar to us, we must indeed study it carefully so that we do not read meaning into Moses' narrative that is simply not there. Now we've seen how Moses, in his telling of creation of the heavens and the earth, clearly set out God as creator, who creates for his glory. We've seen how he provided spaces and filled them to reflect his glory, and how God created man, both male and female, to bear his image, to fill the earth with his glory in procreation and in subduing the earth, to dedicate their every occupation as stewards across the planet, moving progressively out from the garden in Eden to worship and to the joy of our Creator. But it was not to be, at least not yet. Instead, we were encouraged because we learned how necessary it is to understand that last things in the Holy Scriptures are actually wrapped up in these first things. What we see here in Genesis, in God's covenant with Adam, the signs in the communion with God, represented in the tree of life, the sign of obedience under God in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the possession of the earth as regent and lord, are all ultimately fulfilled. But not in this first Adam, by his disobedience, but by the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his obedience. God's image, which was meant to originally spread naturally, is taken up and surpassed in God's image, spread supernaturally in the new birth. What was to begin in physical generation is fulfilled in spiritual regeneration. The garden temple in Eden fulfilled as the entire earth becomes a temple in the new heaven and new earth where God dwells continually. And last time when we were together we examined the dialogue of dissent between the satanically influenced serpent and the woman that culminated in disobedience and fall of both Adam and the woman. The authority structure of creation reversed what should have been God, man, the woman, and animal is 
tragically overturned by the fall. The woman listens to the serpent, the animal. The man listens to the woman, and no one listens to God. We saw how in his question, Satan introduces an unvoiced assumption. In other words, God's word is subject to our judgment. And as Moses carefully records there, the woman descended into her own revision of God's word. First, she diminishes his word. Next, she adds to his word. And finally, she softens his word. Diminishes, adds, and softens. The ground prepared, Satan now makes a direct contradiction of God's word, telling her, you will not surely die. The threat of death is nothing more than a scare tactic. It's to keep you and your husband in your place. God has a hidden agenda that is not for your good. He is not to be trusted. You must make the decision for yourself. Moses then quickly records the woman's thoughts. The tree was physically appealing. She saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, aesthetically pleasing. And most pleasing of all, it will give her independence to be desired to make one wise. My wisdom, my judgment, no longer God's word, God's wisdom, and God's judgment. So she took, she ate, she gave, and he ate. The woman followed the serpent, Adam followed the woman, and no one followed the word of God. Now their eyes are open grotesquely. They gained the independence that they sought, but it killed them. God's peace and joy, which the world cannot give, evaporates in an instant. Fear and guilt fill the void instead. Rightly so. For not only guilt in what they have done, but fear. Because now it is no longer safe to remain in the presence of God. Because sin cannot remain in God's presence It's therefore then, in what we see now in our verses that we study tonight, how in mercy and in grace God confronts this disobedient pair. Let's go there now. Now notice how God has not been fully present with them while the focus was on the woman and Adam in their dialogue with the serpent and with one another. The stage, however, now is set for God's visitation. The question is now, in sin, how will people relate to their creator? How will the creator relate to them? It's in the opening phrase that concerns us here to answer these questions. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, we can see from the note in your ESV Pew Bible 
that there's some range of meaning to the original language here. The word translated sound can also be rendered voice. If you go further in study, you'll find that walking may also be translated going forth. And as our note suggests, cool can be made wind, the phrase with it. So taken all together, we get a real sense of this divine visitation. Here's how it would sound. And they heard the voice of a Lord God going forth in the garden in the wind of the day. Now we're not told if the wind of the day is temporal, in other words, at a specific time of day, or it can be the manner by which God's voice travels through the garden on a breath of wind. Now what's so very helpful when you consider the range here of the translation meaning is how clear this first sentence becomes in terms of God's presence. He cannot be fully present. His voice alone is what is heard. It is no longer what it was, a communion in love. But it instead is his opposition to sin. He cannot exist where sin exists. So he comes to them by voice alone. For if he came fully as he had before, they would be utterly consumed. Rather, it is by force of his loving mercy and grace that he now approaches the disobedient man and woman. They must indeed give account for their thoughts and actions. How will they respond? Well, they've hid themselves. So let's consider in detail the verses that follow. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now notice how our Heavenly Father still only confronts Adam. And the reasons from our study we already know, that it was Adam alone who heard the commission and the prohibition directly from God before the woman was created. The covenant is with Adam as the head. Before the fall and after, he is still the responsible authority figure in the family. Therefore, God first questions the man. Now, we've just witnessed the overthrow of God's order, but now he reasserts it. He comes first to Adam. And asks him three questions. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, how are we to understand these questions? Well, we must not think that God's first question, where are you, is as if our Heavenly Father does not know where the couple is hiding. What instead is he doing? He is giving Adam the opportunity of his own to come out from the cover of the trees and admit, to confess his failure. 
Now we'll see this again, sadly, in the not-too-distant future, tragically, really, at the first murder. God asked Cain a similar question. Where is Abel, your brother? Now God indeed knows the answer to the question. He knows what Cain has done. Rather, you see here in asking where are you, where is Cain, it's a gracious call to repentance. He gives an opportunity for Cain to admit his sin and guilt and responsibility, and here he is giving Adam the same opportunity to admit his sin and guilt and responsibility. Now what happens next underlines how deep and the sin and guilt are found because the normal word order is changed here in the original. The object, your voice, is first. It underlines the fact that Adam's fear and hiddenness is due to God coming near by force of his voice. It also has a double entendre here because hear also can mean obey. It's as if Adam is saying, well, I obeyed your voice in the garden. It's very sad, isn't it, how our natural fear and guilt built upon our unbelief gives birth to the delusion that we can be where God is not. So we flee his presence. We know really, don't we, that we cannot stand before him as we are. The beautiful presence of God with whom Adam has enjoyed sweet communion. The presence all believers will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth where we are told that we will see his face. His name will be on our foreheads. But Adam instead here in his excuse points to his disobedience. He hid because it made him afraid of being before God rather than being before God in love. Before paradise was lost, Adam and the woman were naked before God and one another, but unashamed. In here, the opposite occurs. This alienation is so clear and so absolute, and yet God does not give up. He continues his questioning. In the next two questions for Adam, he's really trying to get the man to to make his confession and come to him in contrition and repentance. In verse 11, he says this, And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? There the two are, you see. These are not questions of a heavenly father that's been taken by surprise, as if ignorant of what's happened. He's coaxing that confession out of Adam, isn't he? Because he needs forgiveness. In the original language, it has more the force of, surely you have eaten of the tree. In other words, to underline this statement that is already well known to Adam. Who told you you were naked? Oh, surely you've You've eaten of the tree, therefore you you know you're naked, don't you? This is a grace-filled moment, my dear friends. 
But notice what it also does here. God recalls one way and Satan the other. We've gone from Satan's did God really say to a much stronger here, I commanded you not. I commanded. What God had given Adam was not a suggestion or advice, an order, a commandment, a statute to be obeyed. And Adam's response is a very weak confession indeed, for he blames both God and the woman for his circumstances, as if he himself were merely a passive agent. You gave, she gave, underlines Adam's shifting of blame onto his heavenly father and on his wife. It's the woman's fault. So in verse 3, God now turns to the woman to call graciously for a confession and repentance from her as well. The Lord said to the woman, Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now the force of the original here is like what we've just heard. What in the world have you done? God asks. Rather than confess, she goes the same way as her husband. She shifts the blame onto someone else. The word order in the original language actually puts serpent right at the front of the sentence instead of the verb, I, ate. The serpent is the cause of my disobedience. The cause is his, not mine. Can you see here how futile these answers truly are? How there is an admittance of what has occurred, but no real confession of responsibility with repentance. You know, I believe we can make up a proverb here, what we've learned from the scriptures, couldn't we? You may have heard it this way, to err is human to forgive divine. Have you heard that one? How about like this? To err is human. To blame it on others and on God is even more human. To err is human, but to blame it on another and on God is even more human. We see here how we do the same, don't we? We blame God for placing us in circumstances that we regard as too much for us. A student cheats on a test, rationalizing that it is someone else to blame for giving them a difficult teacher or a busy schedule. Some thieves steal, blaming life and God for their thievery. God, you know my weaknesses, but there it was. Why did you allow it, they'll say. Or the adulterer who blames God for the ingredients that led to their sin, their depression, their poor self-image, being alone, the faraway place, the persons available, loneliness. The second thing we learn is that the commonest delusion is simply this. God made me this way, so what can I do? 
Such thinking is really from the pit, isn't it? Now, the third may be found if you read Adam's sin through the lens of today's world. You'll see the language of the victim. The modern version would go something like this. I would guess, God, you're responsible for my situation. That's left me so susceptible to sin, my upbringing, my my abuse, my inept parents and teachings, where I grew up, the neighborhood I was in, the friends I had. If you add it all up, the totality of a life, where do you end up? Well, it's God's fault. He's responsible, not me. So what are we to do, we who are sons and daughters of Adam? We share solidarity with him, don't we? In original sin and in what we commit, both those things that we ought to have done and the things that we ought not to have done. What's the answer? Where do we put the blame? We're to blame the Lord Jesus. Or more accurately, We are to rest all our blame on him. Paul explains it this way in Romans 5. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, the first Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. You see, my dear friends, the second Adam, our second Adam, was the one man in history who never tried to put the blame on anyone else. He never tried to pass the buck. Now, why did he not do that? Because as a sinless man, he never needed to pass the blame. He never needed to pass the buck on the responsibility for sin. Rather, our sinless God-man said this, pass the blame on me. The blame stopped with Jesus. Now we see this so clearly in our recent study of Luke chapter 23. Blameless Jesus hung between two blameworthy thieves. Christ hung as the innocent among the guilty. But on that hill, a miracle happens. One of the thieves sees cursing and begins to listen. And before he died, he declared Jesus to be guiltless, saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And during the ensuing darkness of Golgotha, the guilty man's sins were lifted from him and placed on the Lord Jesus. His blame stopped when it rested on Jesus. The blame stops with Jesus, the second Adam. So that's the great question as we conclude, isn't it? Have you stopped passing the blame for what you have done? From what you have thought? Have you said the guilt for your sin is yours 
Have you taken that guilt, that blame, and passed it on to the Lord Jesus? Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.